we all we all good? Yeah. You have an exam a week from Monday. today. Okay, Mon yeah, a week from Monday, which is today. So, um, the uh, video segments from the initial lectures earlier on are starting to be posted to the iTunes U site. Right, so if you, yes, so you would, some of you who were not here in the first couple of days, you would be interested in going to the Blackboard and, and looking at that. So yes, you can download them to your iPod and watch them if you have the video or listen to them if you just like to do that as well. Okay? How much are they? They're free. You paid for them when you enrolled in this class. So, more uh, added benefit to you. Or if you're in need of a good night's sleep, you can always listen to them and I'll put you out in about five minutes as well. So, um, Self-deprecation is a good thing, right? Um, so last time we finished talking about water, and I was threatening to start talking about carbon and all of its, all of its gory details. So last time we were talking about all the properties of water, uh, mostly related to its polarity, where its electrons are, its ability to form hydrogen bonds with a lot of other water molecules around it. So it has this high, uh, high specific heat, high boiling, to, or it carries a lot of energy, right? Um, all of those hydrogen bonds enable it to carry a lot of energy. If you want to condense um, water vapor, steam, into a liquid, you have to get all of that energy out. And you can feel how much energy that is by giving yourself a steam burn, okay? Um, water vapor is not particularly high temperature thing, right? 212 degrees is the temperature where you can start converting water into the vapor form. In bulk, we call it boiling. Um, and like I said last time, if you stuck your hand in a 212 degree oven, yeah you know, it would be warm, but you certainly wouldn't be getting any, any massive burning going on. Yet, if you hold your hand over 212 degree steam coming out of a tea kettle or something like that, you'll get a massive, massive, uh, horribly bad steam burn, okay? So as this water vapor is condensing back into a liquid, giving that, uh, giving that energy back up to the environment, it's going into you, okay? Um, and it's a lot, as you can feel. So when we were talking about the Earth as a whole system, um, heating this water up in the oceans and the tropics and moving it around through ocean circulation all over the planet, you end up on the global scale with a planet that has very even temperatures. Okay, sure, it's cold in the North, North Pole and South Pole. Sure, it's warm in the tropics. Um, and it's cooler at the nighttime than it is during the day. But if you go to other planets or other orbital bodies like, moon, like the moon or Mars or something like that, in the daytime, it'll be extremely hot. And then as soon as uh, nighttime falls on Mars, it'll get extremely cold, okay? Um, and you'll get temperature fluctuations of 150, 200 degrees sometimes. And now we're talking about between day and night here, 20 degrees, right? Um, so the water vapor in the atmosphere absorbing all of that heat during the daytime. And in the nighttime, when the sun goes down, which is you know, not technically correct, right? As the Earth rotates, I should say, you know, uh, all that heat, a lot of that heat is given back up to the environment, keeping it warmer at night. It doesn't drop 150 degrees when the sun goes down, right? Um, so we end up with this nice, even-temperatured planet, which is, is fairly, fairly nice. And even that, right, is something that you might be able to predict from looking at the structure of water as it forms a liquid, you know, and all of these uh, hydrogen bonds branching out from one water molecule to another based on those polar covalent bonds, Okay, and the four other water molecules that can form a hydrogen bond with, with each water molecule. Um, each one of those hydrogen bonds are weak, but you can form a lot of them. All right, you get four per water molecule in there. All right, so, uh, and we were talking, finishing up last time by talking about water as a universal solvent and uh, the other property of it that's interesting, which is its pH, right? Um, 
Uh, water is the universal solvent. Having these nice polar covalent bonds within that water molecule allows it to dissolve other polar things in nature. And uh, because we call water the universal solvent, all these things dissolve in water. So what does that tell you about most things that exist out there in nature? They're polar, right, as well, okay? Um, water does a horribly lousy job of dissolving nonpolar things. It doesn't do it at all, actually. Um, not too many things out there that we encounter that form part of our biochemistry are nonpolar, okay? So water is the universal solvent, being polar covalent bonds, right? As most things that we encounter are polar in one respect or another. And if you recall, taking this all the way back to earlier on, you know, the only way to really get a nonpolar covalent bond is to have a bond between an element and another of its, own, of its own kind, or a bond between an element and something else that is equally electronegative, okay? So most things don't do that, okay? Usually there's an electronegativity difference between two bonding partners, and anything where that, where that occurs is gonna be a polar covalent bond, and those things are gonna dissolve. Does all sound familiar? Yes? Good. Okay, now off to water and on to carbon. Okay, um, I've been talking about carbon as this fundamental unit of life on Earth or this fundamental basis molecule or, or element for life on Earth. Um, and that's not an accident that that's the case, right? Um, carbon, if you look at its structure and where its electrons are um, and all that kind of stuff associated with it, it seems like a good thing to use in order to make uh, a molecule that's useful for life on Earth. If you recall when I was talking about Aristotle and the things that he was talking about, there's this relationship between form and function. And we were talking about how um, uh, things like morphine, okay, work the way that they do because you have a naturally occurring receptor in your brain that fits that little side chain shape off to the side, okay, um, which endorphins fit into as well. So what a morphine injection will feel like to you is a massive, massive endorphin, uh, endorphin release in your body. Okay, so if you want to get the effects of morphine, go and eat a lot of the hottest, hottest chili peppers you can find and then smack yourself in the hand with a hammer, all right? Um, or, right, you can just get some dental work done or whatever you want to do, right? Um, but whatever you do to get those endorphins to go, right, those are going to be the same receptors in your brain that morphine will, will attach onto. And that works because both the morphine and the endorphin had that same shape off to the side. So shape is important. The shape of these molecules is what's ultimately going to dictate a large portion, if not all, of their function, okay? Um, and carbon is a useful molecule to use to, to, um, to build complex shapes out of because it has six protons. Because it has six protons, right, it has six electrons. Um, how many valence electrons will carbon have? Four. Four valence electrons, okay? Anybody play with Tinker Toys when you were a kid or still? You did, there's usually only one or two people in a room it's usually the two oldest students in the room who say that because Tinker Toys seem to be a thing of the past. Right, a couple of you play with Tinker Toys. I played with Tinker Toys all the time when I was a kid. Um, some, of those, some of those pieces are more useful than others. All right, what's the most useful Tinker Toy in the whole set? Yeah, little wheel. Yeah, I mean, it's a no-brainer, right? The little wheel, and it has the hole in the middle, and it's got the eight holes going on the outside, right? Why is that so useful? Yeah, you can stick anything in there, and you can make a lot of different shapes. You can make, you know, straight lines. You can make 90-degree angles. You can make 45-degree angles, right? You can put all kinds of different um, sticks in there, right, of all different colors, right, and a lot of different angles, and that's what makes it incredibly useful. Um, there are other less useful Tinker Toys. There's the kind of weird orange plastic one where there's a, one hole on one side and one hole on the other, and you can make long 
tinkertoid segments out of it, but not particularly diverse ones. Okay, that little, that wheel, right, that nondescript little wheel is by far the most useful one um, as a result of all the different holes that it has and all the different angles that it has in it. If you looked at the periodic table and said, of the commonly occurring abundant things on the Earth's surface today that are not going to kill us, like fluorine would, um, what would be the most useful one for making a variety of shapes? It'd be the one with the most uh, available electrons for covalent bonding, where it's where you can get the interesting bond angles, and of course, that leaves us with carbon, right? Or silicon, right? One of those two, okay? Uh, everything in that same column is going to have similar properties. Silicon has four valence electrons, carbon has four valence electrons. If I were this size, but silicon based, right, I would weigh about a thousand pounds with all my extra protons and neutrons and things like that. So you'd be really, really heavy. There'd be a mass problem. Life would be different if it was silicon-based. It'd probably be a lot smaller um, on the Earth. Um, but it's, chemically, it's going to react the same way, and it's going to give you similar bond angles and things like that. So because of that, you can get all kinds of interesting shapes and structures. Just starting with uh, a simple methane molecule, CH4, um, here you will always end up with these lovely four-sided pyramids, okay, um, with very typical shaped bond angles. Um, if you look at some of the higher up, uh, hydrocarbons like uh, ethane. Here you have C2H6, right, where you have essentially two four-sided pyramids that are kind of structured together, right, which is a kind of interesting and fascinating shape of its own, offset by each other by about 45 degrees. So there's a cute little shape you can make. Um, ethene or ethylene, right, which is similar to ethane, but there's a double bond here. So you have to jettison a couple of the hydrogens to accommodate that. Um, and you end up with a double bond. And these molecules, because they are now double bonded, are very, very flat. There can be rotation along this bond right here, okay? Just one bond uh, forming there between those two. You can go ahead, you can hold on to one side of it and you could spin the other one, okay? And it would zzz, kind of rotate around. When you have double bonds, you can't rotate around those, okay? That's like, you know, holding uh, two hands uh, of somebody else. And you can squiggle a little bit, but you can't make a full, a full turn or things start breaking. Right? Um, so if you want to have a flat structure that's going to lock a couple of carbon atoms into place, you can use a double bond in order to, to maintain that flatness. Whoa. Do you ever have like a triple bond? Um, you can have triple bonds, and those are, again, going to be very, very flat right? Um, as a result of it. So uh, you can make long chains just by adding more carbon onto the growing carbon chain. You can start making branch structures as well, so we don't just have to make a long chain, we can have a side chain of carbon, and this chain can go off and do its own thing up here, independent of this one over here. Um, again, where you put those double bonds can uh, cause that molecule to be flat and locked into a, into a particular dimension at various places. There's nothing saying that you can't make carbon rings, okay? So those are very easy to do as well. You know, you can make a lot of different angles, you can make a lot of different shaped molecules just using carbon. Oxygen is not so useful, right? You can only make two bonds with oxygen. I mean, you can do stuff with it, but not that much. You know, oxygen is the little plastic orange, you know which one I'm talking about, right? The little, the little plastic orange one where you can put two sticks in, and that's fine and everything, but it doesn't let you build houses and big complex structures and buildings with, with interesting angles, okay? Uh, so carbon is good for molecular diversity, right? We require a lot of different uh, kinds of bonds, a lot of different shapes for our enzymes and our molecules, and carbon is, is just the thing. Or silicon. Carbon is preferred for mass reasons, I imagine. 
However, if you look at the other kinds of elements that are bonded to carbon, most frequently in living systems, and we already know this from our, our earlier first, second day of class, those four most common and abundant elements in, uh, in biological systems are carbon, right? Nitrogen, oxygen, and hydrogen. This is old news by now, right? And now that we know about valence electrons and the octet rule and bonding and things like that, we can look at some of the interesting properties of each one of these other common bonding partners with carbon. So here's carbon with its four valence electrons. So you can make a covalent bond with each one of those four electrons. With nitrogen, right, um, you have five valence electrons, but you can't make five covalent bonds because the octet rule kind of gets in your way, right? So you can make a covalent bond over here with this one, down here with that one, and over here with this one. And that, plus these two up here, will take you up to eight. So you can make three bonds with nitrogen. You can make two bonds, covalent bonds, with oxygen right here and one right here, okay? And you can make one with hydrogen, as the octet rule in the innermost shell uh, has a maximum number of two electrons you can put there, right? So talk about a molecular toolkit here that, that's useful and diverse. You can make three bonds with that, or four bonds with that, three bonds with this, and two bonds with this, and one bond with that, right? So uh, all things in between. Is there any accident why these are like the four most common uh, biological molecules. I mean, if you wanted to build a molecular tinker toy set, okay, where it had a lot of different diverse things out of molecules that are common and abundant, these are probably the four that you would choose. If you have a single electron over there that you don't want to make react with something big and you just want to take it up, right, bond it with hydrogen and lock it in place with that, okay? Um, if you need to make some nice 90 degree angles, right, you can use carbon as a backbone. If you want to get some 120s out there, um, you can either double bond one of these and have two left over, or you can just use nitrogen instead, right? So you can use and cherry pick, so to speak, which element you want to use to make the different bond angles that you need in order to put these, these molecules together. And you have a lot of diversity that you can use just from these four alone. And of course, in the Tinker Toy set, we can further this analogy. What do the sticks represent in the Tinker's Toy set? Yeah, those are the covalent bonds, right, that, that you're making, right? The, the, the knobs, the little uh, access points with the holes in them, those are the useful parts of the Tinker Toy set. The sticks just connect them to each other. All right. So if we want to think about what that part of that molecule was when we were talking about the epinephrine morphine example earlier, that little uh, molecule off to the side that was actually doing the reaction. We can call that a side chain, but we can also call it a functional group, all right? Um, if you look at that, uh, that whole big molecule, that one little side region off to the side that fits into that receptor is the only part of that molecule that really has the properties that we want, okay? That's the part that fits into that receptor, okay? So that group off to the side has the function, so we will call that a functional group, all right? Sound good? All right? Now, if you take an organic chemistry class, you're going to be exposed directly with a multitude of different kinds of shapes that you can make with carbon. Okay, that's essentially what organic chemistry is. Um, if you start looking at most biological molecules that we experience during the course of the day um, and that, that we use in our bodies, um, there's an extraordinary diversity, sure, but there's repeating patterns. Okay, there are some little functional groups that exist a lot more than others, that you see in a lot more places than others, okay? Um, and I usually don't have you rotely memorize things, right? Uh, but occasionally I do. And this is a case where if you rote memorize these six functional groups, okay, you're gonna see them everywhere, you're gonna use them all the time, you're gonna recognize them when you see them, and a lot, a lot of molecules will make a lot more sense 
Okay, so there are six, and I'm now going to attempt to use the document camera to show you what they look like. I'll go back to it in just a second. So we have, where's my, I'm going to try to zoom out a little bit so I can get the whole thing wrong way. There we go. So we have, I'm trying to use new technology in the classroom, and so far it's been, did I do something weird? It's easier than the board, okay? So we have a hydroxyl group, which looks like this. There's X, right, which is essentially anything you want it to be. Okay, um, it, can have a, it can be a carbon ring, it can be a carbon chain, right? Whatever kind of molecule you want back there, uh, we'll just call that X. Now, we want to attach the hydroxyl functional group onto that molecular backbone, whatever that X is, right? Um, hydroxyl is going to be OH, like that. Okay, we can have a, it is whatever you want it to be. It can be a carbon ring, it can be a carbon chain, right? It can be any molecule out there that, that you want, right? Um, what's important is that thing. That's what the hydroxyl functional group is. The carbonyl or carbonyl group is going to be whatever molecule you want, right? The X, whatever, whatever X is, bonded to a carbon, which is double bonded to oxygen, with a hydrogen off to the side. So this is the carbonyl group. C double bonded to the O with a hydrogen off to the side. Um, usually, these functional groups are off to the side, okay? They're, they're at, a, at a terminus uh, of a molecule somewhere. You, you can have like a big carbon ring or something like that with a, with a carbonyl group off to the side, right? Occasionally, you can get carbon chains like this with you have this double bonded oxygen, which looks a lot like this, but the double bonded oxygen is off to the side. If this C double bonded to O, is in the middle of a, of a chain or something like that, we would call that a ketone, right? Um, I realize this is not an organic chemistry class, right? But you see this carbonyl group associated in a lot of places. Uh, if you just kind of see it at the end like that, this would be, um, yeah, I don't want to get too much into it, but this would be an aldehyde. So formaldehyde, right, it has a lot of that structure. But this structure as a whole, as we would call it, um, we're just going to call that the carbonyl group. Okay, so this whole molecule would be whatever aldehyde, this whole molecule would be whatever, you know, ketone. So the functional group that has those, that brings that, those uh, properties with it, we're going to call the carbonyl group. Our third one is our carboxyl group. Okay, and it's going to be whatever... You want it to be, right, attached to C, demobotted to O, 
actually with a kind of a, hard, uh, a hydroxyl kind of being a part of the, the functional group in itself. So this is a carboxyl. So it's like a carbonyl, but it's been oxed, oxygened, right? There's an extra oxygen in the, in the carbonyl group, making it the carboxyl group. So here we have one, two, and three. I don't care if you remember this stuff. Remember the carbonyl group as it is, okay? Oh, no, you need to remember the structures. Do I just have to remember the names? I ain't doing it for my health, right? We have four, the amino group. What do we like better, backlit or toplit? Sorry. Which is going to be whatever that you want attached to nitrogen with two hydrogens coming off the side. So where do you, th where, what kind of molecule would you look at in your body to try to find an amino group? Amino acids, right? There's amino groups and amino acids. You have the sulfhydryl group, which is easy. It's a sulfhydryl group, sulfur and hydrogen. Sulfhydryl groups are weird. Um, if you have um, some kind of amino acid chain growing up here and some other kind of amino acid chain down here, and there's a sulfhydryl group on one side and a sulfhydryl group on another, um, you can kick off those hydrogens and you can get a covalent bond between those two sulfur, um, those two sulfur atoms right there, and that is an extremely strong bond. All right. So, um, a lot of times, if you want to try to make bonds between amino acid chains to really lock that, that protein into shape, you can use sulfhydryl bonds to do it. And it's literally like anchoring one side of a chain to another. It's an extraordinarily strong covalent bond. Okay, so, so that's usually what sulfhydryl groups are used for, component of amino acids to really lock chains into place. Right, and six, we have another weirdo. We have the phosphate group. which is weird like that. Phosphorus with five covalent bonds coming off of it, okay? Uh, one to each oxygen and a double covalent bond to another oxygen. Usually, just so you know, Those oxygens will be combined with a hydrogen just to take up that charge, right? But the functional group of, of the phosphate group as it is, is that. Now, phosphorus is weird because if you look at, did everybody get those? Good. If you look at phosphorus, well, if you look at the periodic table, right? Here's nitrogen. Right under it is phosphorus, okay? So nitrogen should act a lot like phosphorus, 
Okay? It should have the same number of valence electrons, which it does. Okay, I don't need to draw that so small, right? It should have the same number of valence electrons, and it does. Okay, this has, you know, seven. This is atomic number seven. This is atomic number of 15. So they each have five uh, valence electrons. So you should be able to make three covalent bonds with each of them, right? You should be able to make three covalent bonds with each of them. Do we have a problem? Houston, we have a problem, right? Uh, you should be able to make three covalent bonds, yet phosphorus can make five. Um, it's one of the few uh, elements that is just blatantly going to disregard the octet rule at every possible opportunity. Um, so memorize the octet rule for what it is, and it's usually going to be fine. It's going to be a good guide, but phosphorus is going to be an exception. Okay, you can make five covalent bonds with it instead of just three, which means you can pack ten valence electrons into that shell. Why? Who knows? There are books written on phosphorus, right? Uh, because it does. That's not the only weird thing that phosphorus that phosphorus does, right? So, uh, literally, I'm not kidding. I don't recommend that you go check any out, right? Um, because they're not an easy read. But there are books written on phosphorus. It does very strange things like that. But you use phosphorus quite a few places in your body. Um, not the least of which you use phosphorus to carry energy in the molecule ATP. Right? Um, so you'll actually, in a molecule of ATP, you'll have a nucleotide with three phosphate groups attached to each other. Right? In a lot of bonds between one, pho the phosphate, one phosphate group and another phosphate group, right? and that bond is going to be a covalent linkage between two oxygen uh, atoms. Right? And that's obviously going to be, they're both equally electronegative, so that electron's going to be held in the middle. Um, but those are pretty electronegative molecules, so they're both really going to be pulling hard on that electron. Right, so there's going to be a lot of energy stored in that electron between these two oxygens okay, that you can get back out again if you'd, if you'd like to. Right, so phosphate functional groups are good for carrying energy in, in the molecule ATP. All right, so hydroxyl, carbonyl, carboxyl, amino, sulfhydryl, and phosphate. Um, and you'll see those again and again and again. Okay? Now, why these might be useful to you, let me show you one more cute little trick about why it's good to, why it's good to memorize these things. If you look at an amino acid, okay, I'm just going to sit here and I'm just going to blast one out, right? There's a perfectly good amino acid, right? Um, you have your R group on the bottom. This can be one of about 20 different things uh, in the human body, depending on what amino acid you're talking about, glycine or leucine or, you know, isoleucine or tryptophan or whatever it is. Um, this is all going to be different. With all amino acids, this stuff up here in the top is going to be the same. Okay? That's always going to be the amino acid backbone. So do you have to memorize this entire thing, right, as a completely unique structure? What is, what is that? That's a carboxyl group. What is this? So in all of those six, okay, um, functional groups that I laid out, that C right there, that middle C, represents our, our X that we had, right? So for our X, we're going to use a C. We're going to put our carboxyl group on one side. We're going to put an amino group on another. We're going to use, we have an extra valence electron up here, so we don't want that to react with anything, so we should probably just attach 
hydrogen to it, right? Just to kind of take up that valence. Like I said, it's like a valence placeholder, right? Um, and we can attach something interesting down there, whatever we want for our, for our group. Now, why these things are useful, let's say I have another amino acid out there. So how would, how would you identify like, if you have the carboxyl and the amino acid? Um, we call it, just call it an amino acid, right? Um, you, you can see this not as a completely unique and separate thing, so much as you can see these as combinations of functional groups. I'm just referring to the right? question that would be like on the test. The, the question would be draw an amino acid. You know, draw a generic amino acid, and you know you can either uh, NCC. Uh, remember that because you're a Star Trek fan, and those are the call symbols of the Enterprise, right? Um, and put a double bonded to O up here and an OH down here, or in a bunch of hydrogens off here to the side, right? Or you can say I'm going to take a central carbon, I'm going to attach a carboxyl on this side, an amino on this side, and an R group on the bottom, right? So if you if you know these if you know these functional groups, the drawing of things becomes much more clear and much more straightforward as most things are combinations of a simple carbon backbone and a functional group stuck on in different ways, okay? Now, if I have another amino acid over here, and I want to attach them together to make a protein, proteins are chains of amino acids, uh, I can take this, hydrox this hydroxyl right here, right, and that hydrogen right there, and make a molecule of, kick out a molecule of water, shuffle that bond over there, and I have a dipeptide, right, a small protein, okay? So if you have a carboxyl on one side and you have an amino on another, you can dehydrate, pull water out, and bridge the two with a bond and make a polymer, right? So functional groups are neat things, right? Um, you can do bonding, mixing, right, or kind of mix and match bonding to try to, you know, if a carboxyl over here, I can make a... I can pull water out and bond that with something else that has some hydrogen on it, right? Carbonyl, maybe not, you know? So each of these different functional groups are going to have uh, a variety of different uses. A variety of different uses. Uh, and memorizing them is easy, right? Just learn six names um, and get out a piece of paper and draw them until you know them. I mean, some of them are easy. Hydroxyl, hydrogen and oxygen. You think you can handle that? Sulfhydryl, sulfur and hydrogen, good. If you know carbonyl, you can get carboxyl by putting an OH instead of an H, right? Phosphate's weird, so that'll be an easy one. And the amino, that ain't too hard either, right? So uh, don't, you know, don't need to freak out or anything like that. They're pretty straightforward and pretty easy. And you're going to be seeing them over and over and over and over again throughout the rest of the semester. So like I said, I don't have, when I have you memorize stuff like this, I don't do it lightly. Okay, but this is a good, this is a good thing to just, uh, to just knock, knock home. So the easiest way to make sure you get points for the, on the exam for this is be able to name and draw all of them. Get out a piece of paper that has nothing on it. Write down the names of the six functional groups and write the structures next to them. You know? You don't need a multiple choice test to do that, do you? Absolutely not. All right. So uh, again, here's another example of why functional groups can be useful and important. Okay, here we have two very, very different, uh, different expressions within the same species. This is a female duck right here, and here's a male duck. And what makes them have the outward appearances that they do? We could be having this conversation uh, between us, right, between what makes a male a male and a female a female, um, this individual has more estrogen 
in their body, and this one has more testosterone in their body. If you look at the chemical backbone of these molecules and all steroids, they're going to look like this. There are three six-carbon rings and a single five-carbon ring. Testosterone, three six-carbon rings and a single five-carbon ring. The difference between testosterone and estrogen, hydroxyl is over here with a double-bonded oxygen over there, it's estrogen. If those two are flipped, it's testosterone, right? So that's it. That's it, right? So if you want to think about what affects the outward expression is of gender, right? It's the position of that hydroxyl group. Is it attached down here or is it attached up there? All this stuff in here, there, there's properties associated with it, right? But it's not where the actual business end of these molecules are, right? What gives this the properties of testosterone and will result in maleness as it's expressed or versus this one, which has, you know, the outward expression of femaleness associated with it. Something as small as where is that little functional group attached? Is it down here or is it up there? Okay, so functional groups, they really are the little chains off to the side, right, that really influence um, the expression of these, of these molecules and, and how they work biologically based on shape. Okay, so profound differences. Uh, can come from very, very small chemical differences based on functional groups and where they are. All right, so that ends chapter four. This begins chapter five, okay? And I'll get through a little bit of chapter five today. I'll finish up chapter five um, next time. Uh, if I don't get all the way through chapter five on Wednesday, I'm just gonna stop because I'm not gonna start chapter six uh, and then only give you an exam over part of it. So your exam will cover through chapter five. You know, I throw these four through these four different classes of biomolecules. All right. Um, so we're moving upward in our hierarchy. We're pretty much done with the foundations of basic chemistry and atomic structure and all that kind of stuff. And we started making molecules. Now we're going to make macromolecules, big molecules. Okay, four of them, which you see over and over and over again within your body. If you take your body and separate it into all its organic, you know, kind of pitch the inorganics right, the calcium phosphate and things like that, and keep all the pile of all the organic stuff within you, you can separate virtually everything in that pile into one of four categories. Carbohydrates, fats, proteins, and nucleic acids. Everything that you are that is organic is one of those four different molecules, okay? So what we'll do, right, we'll just kind of go through them one by one, okay? We'll probably get through carbohydrates today. We might get uh, make headway into lipids. Uh, we probably won't get into proteins, uh, and we definitely aren't going to get into nucleic acids. Okay, but these four are it. Any questions about functional groups before I go on to delve into greater things? We good? Yep. All right. You speak for the class. <laughs> okay. Carbohydrates, uh, we usually just refer to them as sugars, right? Um, if you're consuming a sugar, you're consuming a carbohydrate. Um, you use them primarily as fuel, okay? When I'm walking around up here back and forth and thinking about stuff and using my muscles, I'm not burning fat, right? I'm burning carbohydrates, I'm burning sugars, okay? Every day, um, I, used, I store just about 2,000 calories worth of sugars in my liver as glycogen, okay? And during the day, um, if I'm not eating something and getting my sugars that way, I am actually breaking off little chunks of, the, of that glycogen during the course of the day through my liver and releasing it into my body, 
right? To the extent that I want to maintain this 90 milligrams per milliliter homeostatic glycogen level in my glucose level in my blood, right? Your mitochondria like glucose. That is the preferred uh, dining option for the mitochondria, so to speak, right? Um, and if you're not eating it, okay, you're getting it from your liver, okay? And like I said, you store about 2,000 calories a day worth of it in your liver that's usable. After you use your 2,000 calories per day, then you need to start metabolizing fat and things like that, right? Um, so like I said, when I'm walking around up here, I'm not, I'm, actually, I'm not actually burning fat, right? I'm actually burning moment to moment glucose, a sugar molecule that I'm, I'm storing during, in, incrementally throughout the day. Now, if anybody in here runs really long distance, anybody long distance runner? There's a, a, a office mate of mine in, in one in 106 office suite over there who runs ultra marathons. She did a hundred miler in June, right? She's, uh, she, yeah, she's, she's an, she's an interesting person. She, she said it really started to hurt at mile 75, but at once mile 90, well, it, no, everything got really, really fine at mile 75 from the endorphins. But then at mile 90, it started to hurt again. She said like at mile 90, it started to hurt again. I asked her how long it took and she said 30 hours, right? So be on your feet. Yeah. Be on your feet for 30 hours running running right so she's it's an ultra marathon yeah um and you can't do that lightly i mean if you're going to be doing that okay you need to be carrying packs of of, of glucose gel with you right um there's no carbo loading you can do the night before that's going to prepare you for that i mean you just can't you just can't do it you know um and you can't metabolize fat that quickly you can metabolize fat, but you can't do it at a rate that you can sustain long-term running, right? If I'm running and I'm running and I'm running and I just hit my 2,000 calorie per day thing, I just don't automatically kick over to, to fat and start burning fat at the same rate, right? You don't get the rate of fat burning like you do the rate of sugar burning. So if you're running this ridiculous race, you know, um, which would be fun and it makes you, wow, that's really cool kind of, kind of person when you meet her, right? Um, you have to be supplying sugars to do that. You can't just do it off of fat alone, right? Um, so like I said, usually you get about, you carry about 2,000 calories a day and a really, really efficient runner. Anybody run a couple miles a day maybe, or you could actually do it if you wanted to or being chased, right? Um, you, you're running about 125 to 150 calories per mile, okay? Um, if you're really thinking about weight loss and you want to think how many, how far do I have to run to run off the Big Mac? The Big Mac is about 600 calories. You got to, it's going to take about five miles to, to run that thing off, right? Eh, you can do it in an hour if you're properly motivated. Um, so let's say that you do that, right? And you start doing this running, do this exercising, and you get up to your 2,000 calorie a day. Okay, you just kind of cross that threshold. You're out of glycogen in your liver, right? Um, and you're going to hit the wall, quote unquote, right? And everything is going to come to a screeching halt. Or things are going to get really, really difficult for you to continue, right? Um, Gatorade can help. There's a lot of glucose and sugars in that. You can get uh, a pack of glucose gel, right? Or just kind of go to the diabetic section of, of the CVS and, and get some glucose tablets, right? And just kind of start popping them at that point. Um, and then it works, right? It works. It's like, oh, okay, my mitochondria are happy again and I can run a little bit farther. Um, but you know that wall when you hit it, right? And, and things just come to a screeching halt. And it's not that you don't want to go on. It's just that your body is refusing uh, to, to do so. Um, you know, so it, with marathoners, let me finish this thought just for a second. With marathoners, they're really doing uh, an efficient cardiovascular and muscular workout. And they can get to about 100 calories per mile, right? And if your body is storing 2,000 a day, once you hit mile 20, things are going to get interesting, 
right? So the best thing to do is to go to Pasta House or Olive Garden or whatever the night before and just eat as many carbohydrates as you can. And you can temporarily, you can say, okay, I got 2,000 in my liver, right? And I can temporarily get a lot of carbohydrates into my body and you can bring your body carrying up to 3,000 or 3,500, even if you eat a lot of pasta. So this whole carbo-loading thing, right, is a short-term solution to accommodate for the amount of sugars that you're going to be burning the next day, right? Um, if you're going to run a 5K, you don't need to carbo-load the night before. That's not an excuse to eat five pounds of spaghetti, right? You're, the amount you're carrying in your liver will be okay, right? And if you do that carbo-loading, man, you better run that race the next day because if you don't, you're going to store it long-term, right? You will convert it into fat, and you will have to exercise to, to get rid of that, right? So if you go into a, a deficit of, of calories, and let's say you're, you're storing your 2,000 calories a day of sugars, Okay, um, and then you start doing some exercise regimen and things like that, or you're only eating a thousand and you're running a couple of miles, right? Um, you're going through, you're, you're either in a, a deficit of carbohydrates and you got to make up that 2,000 calorie in your liver by converting it from fat, right? Or if you're burning 3,000 calories a day, right, then you're converting an extra thousand calories of fat into sugars during the course of the day, right? So. Um, in order to actually start losing fat, you need to go into a, a carbohydrate deficit in your body and start converting those fats into sugars so you can use them because you just don't burn fat. You just really don't do it on a daily, on a daily, uh, on a daily basis. You, know? you have to go into extreme uh, sugar deficit before you can actually start doing that. And your body will actually try to make you stop first before you actually start doing that. And things will come to a screeching halt and it won't be interesting. Right? It's interesting when you give your body the fuel to keep going, right? And, wow, I shouldn't be able to do this, but I'm still going. But when you run out, it's pretty much over at that point, right? You had a question, Fred? Yeah. Um, it says the four macromolecules. So macromolecules, is this another word for organic uh, They're big organics, right? Um, yeah. Um, sometimes we call them biomolecules, right? It's just these four, these four classes. Okay, these organic big molecules that you find in the body, and the carbohydrates is, is one of them. Okay, using it for fuel. So when I'm going around up here, I'm I'm burning sugars. I'm not burning fat. I'm not burning proteins or anything like that. Also, mono. I can't even pronounce that. Monos. Oh, we'll get to those. Yeah, the simplest ones are called monosaccharides. Okay, so individual six-carbon glucose rings or, or chains, right? We're going to call a monosaccharide. You can make large polymers out of them that we're going to call polysaccharides. Okay, if you have two monosaccharides together, it's a disaccharide. Okay, um, so you're using these carbohydrates mostly as fuel. Okay, there are other organisms out there that use these um, for structure. You don't use them structurally. Okay, um, so here's uh, our sugars. Uh, a lot of them. There, there are thousands of different kinds of sugars out there, and here is just some of them. Um, uh, ribose, glucose, galactose, fructose, ribulose, right? Um, usually, if you look at the back of a box on the shelf uh, at, at uh, Safeway or wherever it is that you're shopping, and the word ose is on the back of something or the end of something, uh, the name of something ends in ose, that's going to be a sugar. It's going to be a carbohydrate. They, they end in oses. There are some that don't. Glyceraldehyde is a good, a good sugar, but it doesn't end in ose. But usually, um, well, if you get a Pepsi or something like that and you read the ingredients, it has high fructose corn syrup, corn syrup, right? So it's, it's the sugars that are extracted from, from corn, right, that we're using as a, as a carbohydrate for sweetening in that case. Okay. So these are all good monosaccharides. Um, chemical formulas for the triose sugars, C3H6O3. Okay, for the pentose sugars, um, penta five, five carbon sugars, 
uh, C5, H10O5. For the hexo sugars like glucose, right, we have C, uh, C5 or C6, H12O6. Generally speaking, right, the definition of a sugar is anything that exists with a chemical formula that's a multiple of CH2O. You want to write that down, right? So CH2O times some number, right, is going to be the chemical. For, so, you know, C6H12O6, um, C5H10O5, right, C4H8O4, right? Anything that's a multiple of CH2O, right, is going to be a carbohydrate. All right. Can you go backwards? Like, on hectosurgers, it's C5, H12, so how is that like a... You know what it actually is? It's actually a typo on the slide. that I. <laughs> yeah, there are six carbons here. One, two, three, four, five, six, right? I'll have to go in and change that text. This is what you get when you lift the images from the CD that come with the book. You know, typos. All right. Um, for long-term storage of energy, you don't use sugars, right? You use fats, right? Who in here does not know this, right? Fats? You use fats for this long-term energy storage. If you don't use 2,000 calories a day, then your body says, ah, well, I have some left over. I should store that away for later, and you do so, right? Right under the skin, usually around the midsection. Um, and the more of, a, uh, of, of the, the sugar calories that you don't use, the more you'll pack away for later. Right? Um, and the more of a sugar deficit you go into, the more fat you will convert into the sugars. We established that already. Right? Um, so you're not storing long-term energy as a sugar. Right? You're using it in the, in the here and now. You, you use fats for long-term energy storage. Plants don't, however, use fats for that. Um, plants will use the starch actually for the long-term energy storage. Right? So making, take, here you have each of these six, uh, six carbon rings, a bunch of glucose molecules, and you make a large polymer out of it, make a large polysaccharide out of it. Right, and store that as energy storage for later. And those things are tasty, especially when they're fried and salted. Things like French fries, right? You, you take that uh, carbohydrate energy storage structure called a potato, right, away from the plant, and you cut it up, and you deep fry it, and you salt it, and yay, right? So um, this is what we do with plants. If you did it with an animal, right, it'd be you take the skin off, you scrape the fat out from inside the skin, and you deep fry it, and you salt it, and you eat it, which we do. Right? Well, we don't, but they're good when we do, but we don't because they're going to kill us. Pork rinds and things like that, right? Um, a lot of energy, it's more attractive to think about potatoes, right? Doing that to plants versus doing that to, to animals. But we do it with them both. Who hasn't eaten bacon? Yum? Bacon? See, we do this stuff all the time. Um, fatty stuff that you deep fry and, and, and salt. Uh, but starches, right? Energy storage that, that plants are using, and it's not just uh, potato. I mean, onions are very, very starchy. Carrots have a lot of sugars in them, right? A lot of these um, starchy, sugary vegetables that we eat, or fruits that we eat, right, are essentially sugar-based, okay? The plant storing these sh sugar molecules that it's making via photosynthesis for later, okay? Now, if anybody out here has ever tried to grow a potato, they're easy to grow. It's not very difficult at all, actually. Uh, you want to harvest those right at, at the peak time, right, in September, October, November, right? The plant is using these starches, essentially, to carry with it over the winter and to get out of the ground on, on the next season when it starts getting warm out in the spring, 
right? So, you know, the plant can eat and live off of these stored starches over the winter, and they can use them to grow new leaves initially in the spring, right? Um, so you want to pick those potatoes at the time, right, when the plant has been able to convert as much solar radiation into chemical bond energy as it can via, via photosynthesis, and before it started to actually leach that starch back out of the potato again, because it will, right? So you wait for it to be as big and starchy as it can, right? And then you pull it out of the ground before the plant starts using it again, right? Because they will. If you wait too long, you get these little shrivelly potatoes. The plant has already started to pull in that stored energy uh, and use it, right? So you can, by you being all life on Earth, there are organisms out there that do store energy long-term as sugars. You're just not one of them, right? Um, you do store energy as sugars, just it's all very short-term. It's daily basis, right? And you don't use starch. You use glycogen. This thing, like I, I mentioned before, it's in, in the liver. Uh, you store it in the liver, okay? Uh, and as your blood sugar starts to drop, you will either be stimulated to eat something sugary, okay, and make a bad dietary decision by getting a Kit Kat bar or something like that, or if you don't do that, um, your body will... In, will um, enzymatically start taking this big glycogen uh, molecule in your liver and start breaking little glucose monomers off of it and sending it out into your blood, trying to maintain that homeostatic level of approximately 90 milligrams per milliliter, right? So you store energy using carbohydrates, but it's short-term. It's not long-term plant storage, right? Short-term using energy right now storage. Now, plants do other weird things with it. They make cell walls out of it. Okay, um, so they organize and maintain their structure using uh, these carbohydrates. You don't do that, okay? You maintain your structure through two, two mechanisms, right? One of which, obviously, your, yeah, your skeleton, right? Uses that a lot of structure. But even with your skeleton in place, you're not just kind of lazily draped over it. I mean, your soft tissues have, have structure as well, right? You use proteins like collagen and stuff like that to kind of hold your soft tissues into place and, and into a, if I take your kidney out okay and hold that in front of me it's not going to collapse into a ball of goo it's going to have a, a structure to it right it's going to have an organization and a shape and you're going to oh, look a kidney wait for biology 102 oh look a kidney you know um so you don't use cellulose to do that right you're not even using carbohydrates to do that you maintain your structure through both bones mineralization right and and through proteins plants have opted entirely to make their structure out of, uh, out of sugars, cellulose in this case, which you can eat and you'll be just fine, right? Um, you're not going to get any nutritive benefit out of it. You, there's a little bond right here that kind of, you can see the differences between glycogen and cellulose. This is kind of a long chain, right? And it's kind of uh, helical coiled around. Cellulose is kind of a grid, right? There are these cross linkages. These cross linkages right here don't exist. In, in glycogen. You do not have an enzyme that can break that bond, okay? You just don't. Which you can break these just fine, right? You cannot break those across the, from the, the join one branch to another. So if you eat this, sorry to be gross, it's going to go in one side and out the other, okay? We call it insoluble fiber. You know, you can eat a salad, right? But you don't eat salad for the lettuce, do you? Right? It's the blue cheese, the bacos, the croutons, right? Whatever that other kind of stuff. You can extract nutrition out of those. But the insoluble fiber, the cellulose, that makes up the cell wall of the lettuce leaves themselves are just going to go right, right through without any, uh, without any benefit coming to you. Now, there are animals out there, right, that have adapted solutions to this. 
things like cows, um, probably large herbivorous dinosaurs, but I'm speculating, right? Ruminants, you know, horses, things like that, who eat nothing but grass all day long, or leaves, things like that, right? Plant-based cellulose cell walls. And they are actually getting nutrition out of this, okay? But they don't have any of these enzymes themselves that can, that can, that can break that cross-linkaged bond. But they have a lot of bacteria in their intestines that can, okay? Bacteria invented this lovely enzyme that can break that bond right there, okay? And it does. So if you keep a colony of the bacteria in your gut, right, and just kind of give it as much plant material as it can, the bacteria can go ahead and break that bond, um, even do some digesting, and the byproducts of what the microbial action is going to do is something that the cow can handle just fine, okay? Um, it's usually some kind of fermentation process. And as we all know, the byproducts of fermentation do pack a lot of calories in them. And we try to avoid those, hence the wild success of light beer, right? When, when you're 21, you'll, you'll know these things, right? There's a lot of calories in fermented grains uh, just, for this, just for this reason, right? The, the cows are banking on that fermentation process to give them the nutrition they need, right? Um, which is the byproduct of the bacterial action. Um, they cannot break this bond any more than we can, but they house the bacteria that, that can. If you're going to do that, that's fine. Right? But you're going to have to have a really big gut in order to do it. Okay? Um, you need to house a large enough bacterial colony to actually be able to extract the amount of nutrition that you need. Because fermentation can take a while. Right? Um, and it requires help. I mean, a lot of times you'll see these cows uh, and horses and giraffes and things like that. And they'll chew their leaves and they'll chew them and swallow them. Then they'll wait. Then they'll send them back up. Right? And they'll chew them again. Right? And then they'll swallow it again. And then they'll... Okay, and bring it back up again and chew it again. So, you know, trying to mechanically, you know, and digestively break as many of these molecules apart as they can can increase the rate that the fermentation can act on them, right? So I'm not saying don't chew your food. I'm just saying, well, you don't need to, right? If you eat lettuce just because you're not going to get anything out of it anyway because it can't break that bond. If you were a, a ruminant, right, and feeding these plant insoluble fibers to the bacteria, then I would say chew your food a lot because the more of this bond breaking you can have happen in your mouth, the quicker the fermentation process is ultimately going to be. And as a byproduct of all of this, you're going to produce a lot of methane. Cows responsible for global warming is the, the, latest, the latest thing, right? The sheer amount of methane that's coming out of the cattle industry is enough to raise the planet's temperature by a degree every 100 years, give or take. You know, so a lot of methane coming out of these cows. Question or is it stretch? Uh, no, I do have a question. Uh, you're saying that we can't get any kind of nutritional out of the cellulose, right? Out of the cellulose itself, so right? If you can chew it, if you can break the cell wall, right, you can get, you know, yummy, gooey center out of the cells, but you're not going to get that much of it. You're, you're really not going to get that much of it, okay. right? But if you, I mean, you've heard the urban legend, that's absolutely true. You know, if you, if you eat celery, right, a single stick of celery has, like, negative five calories in it, okay? Um, you're going to spend more work on the chewing, right, then you will actually get out of the, out of the, out of the nutrition out of the cellulose, because all it is is a, like a big piece of cellulose, right, and you're going to chew on that. It's going to take up space, and it's going to, well, it never really makes it feel full, right, but it's going to take up space. If you eat a lot of it, right, you'll eat less of something else um, because it will be taking up that space in the stomach, but you're just not going to get any calories out of it. You just can't break those, those cross-linked cellulose bonds. Yeah, it's a negative calorie, right? Um, so if you want to lose weight, if you're trying to go through your 2,000 calories, if you eat a stalk of celery, you'll go down to 1,995. 
right? Even another stick of celery will be down to 1,900, right? That you have to, right? You're burning more energy by eating the celery itself than you would actually get out of the celery as a whole. I mean, it takes five calories to eat a big, to eat a, a bite of a Big Mac, you know, but you get 100 calories per that bite, you know, so versus none, right? So if you do the math, you end up in negative, negative territory by eating something that's exclu exclusively cellulose. Um, so that's vertebrates that, that, that kind of adapted these solutions. There are some insects that do use cellulose structurally. We call them insects, arthropods, right? That exoskeleton, right, is referred to as chitin. And it structurally is kind of similar to cellulose. It's slightly different, right? Um, but it is an actual polysaccharide um, structural unit, okay? Now, and I just had this done the other day, so I, could, I can talk about this directly. What we can do, right, as a human-based medical community, uh, what we have found the ability to do is actually replicate the chitin molecule and actually weave it into a fiber, which we now make surgical thread out of. So if you ever had minor surgery, which I just had about six months ago, I had something removed from the inside of my lip, actually, and I had three little stitches going across the inside of my lip. Um, uh, in the old days, it used to be, okay, now come back in a couple of weeks and we'll pull those stitches out. So you get a little scissor out and snip them and you, you know, and they kind of go, you know, while it's, you know, pull, feeling the thread being pulled through your skin as that stitch comes out, sorry. Um, and we no longer have that, uh, have that problem today, right? Now we just have these chitin fibers, which are durable, okay, which will biologically degrade at their own, at their own rate. Okay, so now we just kind of, well, if, if you want it to heal quickly, we'll use a thin thread, right? If it's going to take a while longer, we'll use a thicker thread, you know, um, and you'll be stitched up with fibers that are going to degrade on themselves. So you don't actually need to go in and have those fibers taken out, right, after, after a couple of weeks or they just kind of fall apart on their own after a given amount of time. Now, your enzymes really aren't acting on this, right, because you don't have those enzymes that can break those, those cross linkages and things like that. But they will just kind of naturally just sort of fall apart as an organic thing in your body uh, anyway. So it's pretty neat. We're not crushing up in insect exoskeletons to make this, right? We can just take some glucose and we can, you know, kind of in the lab generate these bonds as best we can in order to, in order to replicate what a chitin molecule is, right? And it works very, very well for things like surgery. Really tough, really durable uh, stuff. And you don't have to go back in, right? You can just kind of... Uh, okay, it's good. No need to come back. Call us if there's a problem. Good stuff, right? Um, so uh, if we just look at carbohydrates, right, and try to summarize carbohydrates as best we can, you have the monosaccharides, right, the single uh, sugary unit, which is going to be that multiple of CH2O, okay? It can be like C2H4O2, C6H12O6, whatever it is, right? That monosaccharide is always going to be uh, that multiple of CH2O, okay? If you put two of them together, we call it a disaccharide. If it's between two or 100 units long, we'll call it an oligosaccharide. If it's 100 or more units long, we'll call it a polysaccharide, right? So all of these things, uh, if anything is in saccharide, obviously that's going to be sugary as well. And here's our, uh, our cellulose polysaccharide right here. It's a big polymer. Um, you take a lot of small monosaccharides and link them together to make a big polymer of them. Uh, which, and like I said, for the ninth time, we just can't break that linkage right there. Or we can make a polymer out of it, 
like that, you know, the glycogen, that we can break those. We don't have those side linkages on that. We can break in these individual glucose monomers off of there um, and, and, uh, and use that for short-term energy storage anyway.